Elizabeth. Yes. Do you ever shop on Amazon? Why, yes, I do. Do you? Yes. What did you get last time? Oh, I don't remember. But I'm thinking about getting some costumes for my next music video. Oh, my goodness. I've got the perfect plan for you. What's your plan? You go to skmorton.com. Yes. You with me so far? I'm with you. Okay. On that home page, there's an Amazon button. Amazon.com button. You press that. Mm. It'll take you right to Amazon. And, you know, if you're logged in and all of that goes through. And then you buy your costumes. Okay. Probably something, what? Pink. Oh, pink. I thought just, just, you know, hooker witch, hooker kitten, you know, whatever. But Hooker bunny, hooker, yeah, hooker doctor. Hooker, hooker. Now, that's the hard one to find. Anyway, you go there, you click on that, you buy your costumes, and you know what happens? Mm-hmm. You have just by doing that, just by clicking on the Amazon button on skmorton.com and doing you shopping as you normally would, you have just donated to the podcast to Ooh. keep us going. Yep. Amazon will kick back a little bit. They don't charge you anymore. You know, mm-hmm. and then we get a little bit back. Eventually, we'll pay Pete. He buys you nice things. Ooh. You're happy. You come back to the show. So, what do you think? I I like it. Okay, now sounds fancy. Okay, <laughs> so do me a favor. Do you remember the steps? The steps for helping yes. out the podcast. Step one: When you want to go to Amazon, you first go to. Oh, you first go to skmorton.com. Very good. And what do you do when you get to the homepage on skmorton.com? You can click on the Amazon button on the homepage. Beautiful. And that'll take you? To shop as you would normally. And what happens? Amazon gives a portion of what you spend to the lousy podcast as a sort of finder's fee. It's that simple. It is that simple. And then Pete buys me things. And then Pete buys you things. That's not... Okay. I just promised my band members I would buy them pink and blue costumes. I think we have a plan. Okay. Well, thank you. And you can tell them about the, uh, the SK Morton homepage. And the Amazon button. The following is a production of SK Morton Creative. Places, please. Quiet down. And here we go. And roll camera. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to SK Morton's lousy San Francisco podcast. It's Sunday. It's 7 o'clock. And Sister Wives is a rerun. Tonight, SK welcomes Danny Glover, Carol Channing, Bill Bixby, Lee Merriweather, and that one song by Johnny Mathis. And now, he's always giving 110% because he's bad at math, SK Morton. All right, we'll let it go. <laughs> we try to make it fun. We try to make it happy and peppy, you know, to go into it. Not, it doesn't always happen. <laughs> Drugs help. <laughs> All right. Well, let me do this. I'm very excited. I've been pushing this for a long time. And so we're just going to get right into it. Normally, there's a little bit of what I'm doing right now. But now, we're just going to get right into it. I'm going to greet the adoring throng. Uh, welcome to SK Morton's Lousy San Francisco Podcast and Another Night in the Bomb Shelter. Our senior member of the team, sound engineer of the utmost adequitulent Squidge McSqueezy. And then, of course, our regular full-time permanent co-host and resident chanteur, Peter Feliciano, is on assignment tonight. He really wanted to, to be here, but he's a musician. He's got gigs. Is he a friend of Jose? He, actually, um, <laughs> his father, we just had last week, we had his father on, Grammy Award winning, Rick Feliciano. He's a horn arranger. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So in, pl- in his stead, mm-hmm. we have, well, I'll tell you what we have. 
We have San- the San Francisco art community's brightest star. <laughs> and as such, we should keep our distance and not look directly at her. <laughs> Please welcome, and we're going to have to do this manually, <laughs> Michelle Cinda. She's going to clap for herself, Thomas. <laughs> now, Michelle, you know I love having you here. Thank you. I love being That's here. That's great. Okay, be quiet now. Now, so, <laughs> because we're getting to the important stuff here. This is something I... I Big Papa. It's an expression we use here. Thing. When I say Big Papa, the throng knows we're talking Daniel Bacon. That's how it goes. <laughs> Who else? Now, I've already given it away here because I've been talking about it for weeks, but I have a big intro for you. All right? So, this is what I have. He's San Francisco's leading historian. He's founder of the Barbary Coast Trail. And you've probably seen him on PBS. He was in the movie Sin, Fire, and Gold. Oh. You played Sin, didn't you? Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Along with wonderful fire job. and gold. Yes. Well, you know, you got he can do them all. He's like Eddie Murphy. And uh, that, by In the, the way, clumps. It's a, it's, a, it's a documentary about San Francisco's history, sin, fire, mm-hmm. gold. Mm-hmm. And then he's a man of letters. Mm-hmm. He has written Walking San Francisco on the Barbary Coast Trail mm-hmm. and the Barbary Coast Trail Official Guide, right. uh, Days and Nights on the Barbary Coast uh, the Girl with the Barbary Coast Tattoo, I believe. That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's the next one. <laughs> a Tale of Two Barbary Coasts. The Lion, the Witch, and the Barbary Coast. Okay, it's going on too long. Yeah. And uh, Moby Dick. You did Moby Dick too, right? Um, that's right. Okay, and then of course... I'll take credit for anything. His greatest, that it's out now, and this is what he's here for. His most recent release, the obscenely titled, by the way, Frisco. Mm. Please welcome the man who inspired me to lie to people about old buildings... Daniel Bacon. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And that's right. And this is our caterer. Oh, thank you. I was so excited. Oh, we're good. Because I saw your thing on PBS. That was many years ago. That was many years ago. And they still play it on PBS. Well, yeah. I saw, yeah. I saw Do you get royalties? Yeah, royalties from PBS. <laughs> yeah, but he has to. Yeah, right, yeah. No, but it did. It did earn more money. Really. Than all the other, because they use it for pledge breaks. Oh, yeah. And, and it earned oh more money than any other locally produced program that they did for PBS. Oh, that's wonderful. Wow. And I that's think, great. yeah, they played it for like eight years, you know. Yeah, well, I, all we have a copy of it. Right. Yeah. Right. So, okay. So, what we normally do is we kind of build anticipation. Right. See, we could talk to you. You know, we could have an interview. It could be very interesting. Or we could make everyone wait and talk about just meaningless stuff that's been going around the city. It's a good strategy. All right. Should we do that? So they're all prepared by the time I'm speaking. <laughs> exactly. You know, they're and already the contrast like... is beautiful. They're like, now we're talking yeah, about now, something. Yeah. Yeah. At it's, last. It's the before and the after. What not to do, what to do. That's <laughs> now, how we Now do we it. got some IQ going here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. Look at this. <laughs> He's ready. So actually, no. We are going to get right to you, uh, with the exception of... No rush. The end of each month, I usually do a, an overview of what's coming up in the city. The goings-on, if you will. Mm-hmm. And we didn't do it last week. So here we are already in to the month of June, but I thought we'd try to do a little quick catch-up. How does that sound? Sounds great. All right. And very important, I want to keep doing this. I'm going to be pressing it all week this week. Lizzie Carr's album, Like It's Bad, is going to be be an album release party at Slim's this week. So everybody, doors open at 8 o'clock, June 11th, Friday night. I think it's uh, $13 in advance, $16 at the door. There's a dress code. Black We're black and white, yeah. Wow. It'll go with the thing. So and we're going to push that at the end of the show, too. But that's something that's coming up in June. Now, tell me, Daniel, do you like the jazz? 
Love the jazz. Do you love the jazz? Love the jazz. Are you making plans to go to the 34th annual jazz festival? You know, my wife uh, worked at SF Jazz for, oh, really? for uh, a couple of years, and she helped open the new jazz center. Oh, it's a beautiful place. And uh, so we love that place. I mean, it is the sound there is incredible. There is not a bad mm-hmm. seat in the house. So I'm about to tell you a little secret ooh, here. Ooh, here right? we go. An inside thing for your listeners. Mm-hmm. So there are these little cocktail tables at the very back in each corner, each far corner. Mm-hmm. It's called the hang spot. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with, with raised seats, right? And for a lot of shows, you can get tickets for like 20 bucks, 25 bucks, really cheap. But there's only a few of them for each show. And the place is so compact. That those seats are Incredible. I mean, they're just fine. It's not like you feel like you're up in the nosebleed, yeah, right? Where you need a, you know, uh, you know, binoculars. They're really great seats. So, just a little tip: if you want to get good seats for not a lot of money, uh, you the ask hang spot. for the hang seats. Well, that's my, what my wife calls them, and oh. I don't know exactly what their official name is. She <laughs> you calls can see it... them on the map on the floor when you buy online. Oh, you okay. can see them on the floor map. Plus, I, I think that the people you know take the ticket orders, they'll know you said, we want the hangs. In fact, they'll probably think you're like, oh, they must know something. He's in. Yeah, he's in. <laughs> just, g- give me the, the bacon box. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. So now I know that you, know, you may have noticed. See, this is he's skillful. He's a man of, wor- man of letters mm-hmm. and words. Mm-hmm. Which you use letters to make up. Mm-hmm. I asked him if he was going, and he gave us some great pointers, some great tips. Didn't answer the question though. Did you notice that? <laughs> well, listen, it's okay. You don't have. We're to. actually out of town. I think. Oh yeah. Yeah. That works out. Yeah. So. Okay. No, but. Um, but we love the place. They're having the the kickoff party, and that's the reason why I bring it up is because the kickoff party is going to be free, but they're also going to be. Have you been in the? Okay. On Octavia, where the freeway used to be. When they tore it down in what, Patricia's Park or Patricia's, what's the name? I think it's called Green? Patricia, Patricia's, Patricia's Green. Green. Uh, there was that like two block area where they've been trying to turn it into something. And it's called now the Proxy uh, Walk-In Theater. Have you heard of this? Oh, yeah. No. Yeah, they're going to have a big party. The The opening for the Jazz Festival is going to be at this place. That's great. And it's like surrounded by um, shipping containers. And oh, they got yeah. a big thing there. and. So it's going to be pretty cool. I, I mean, perfect location. But is, is that where um, Smitten and Blue Bottle Coffee yes. are? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. That's a great spot. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, that's going to be coming up on the 7th through the 19th. But on the 7th, from 5 o'clock to 10, at the Proxy Walk-In Theater, they're going to have two bands. They'll be the Brass Band Mission and Beso Negro. Mm. I rolled my R. Oh, yeah. And uh, there'll be a beer garden, videos, <laughs> <laughs> food trucks, and so uh, that's, that's something that can come up, but that probably will be going on before this actually gets. That's coming up this Tuesday night. Mm. So we probably won't have this on the air before then. But at least we're all excited. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it great? Oh, man. I loved it. <laughs> and if you didn't make it there, you're a loser. <laughs> but it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> now, on the 11th and 12th, we're getting closer to me getting some editing done, uh, the North Beach Festival. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's the North Beach Festival. You know, the, the, the filthy Italians. You know. <laughs> Are there I any Italians? I can say that I'm half Beach? filthy Italian. No, they're not anymore. Yeah. Actually, the man in my six, that's his. Uh, well, we can say tonight the man in our six is one of our former guests, Tony Long. Yay! Woohoo! Who lives in North Beach? He does live in North Are you going to be hanging out down there? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> only, I, only rubes and tourists, right? <laughs> Are you really? To escape it. On purpose. 
specifically what? to escape it. Didn't you know that they're going to be blessing the animals? Oh, they do it every year. Yeah. Okay, well, that's going to be something coming up. Now, here's something. Sunday Streets. Are we familiar with Sunday Streets? Tell us about Sunday Streets. They take different parts of the city and they close them down on a Sunday afternoon. And they have, really what it comes down to is a lot like what Tony was saying with the uh, North Beach Festival. There'll be a lot of booths with people selling stuff. But they also have, I think they have a Lindy, uh, Lindy Hop demonstration and class or teach you how to do the Lindy Hop and, you know, roller skating. But this is going to be huge because normally it's, you know, a couple blocks they shut down. This is going to be from the zoo all along the Great Highway up to the park. And then uh, all of uh, JFK, well, up to what transverse the one over by the uh, by the lake. Uh, so it's going to be a couple miles long. It's going to all be shut down for roller skating and biking and things. That's huge. That. Yeah, Daniel just said wow, but he he, he didn't say it out loud. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, Marcel, Marcel, his eyes sparkled. Okay, now let me let me ask you. We've got several natives here. We've got Daniel, of course, Big Papa. We've got RD in the audience. We've got Tony. Long behind us, man in the six, and myself, and I may be the only one out here. Do you call it Stern Grove or Sigmund Stern Grove? I call it the place I got married the first time. Oh, oh really? That's a great place. Oh, wait a minute! Yeah. It's the first time. Maybe it wasn't that great. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you yeah. got married at, at Sigmund Stern Grove. I did. It, it was. A, it was. We sort of pirated our way in, right? So it was on a day when. Uh, they, you know, there wasn't the regular music going on. Uh-huh. I think it was a Saturday, and those concerts are on Sundays. And we couldn't get permission from the park to do it, so we just we kind of did it gorilla style, and uh-huh. we just we just did it because all the it's got rows of seats there, and it's got a stage, and we just invited wow. everybody to That's it, great. and we did it, and the weather was great, and did the nuptials and then there's like this beautiful Victorian house uh-huh. that's yeah. uh, right in there and we did rent that that we didn't break into <laughs> we did rent that for in- our purposes here today <laughs> yeah, right. and that was where the reception is so I always have very fond memories wow yeah. that's cool yeah. um, if anyone likes Stanley Kubrick at the Contemporary Jewish Museum it's starting really it's going to be next month it's starting on June 30th but through October 30th it's going to be the Stanley Kubrick exhibit there and it's going to have uh, all the stuff on his life and the movies he's done and set pieces and things like that. And so uh, that might be something if you're if you're a film buff and uh, you were able to get all the way through 2001. Um, <laughs> it's not one of my favorites. No, it's a Dr. little Strangelove, or Doctor Strange. See, we've had this discussion. That's a great film. I know you love Doctor Strangelove because that's you like black and white. You're an artist. So that's what we've got going. Um, we've got, boy, we're making good time. Let's do a little transition. Try to make a little money. And then we'll have a talk with a man in our neighborhood. Now, Michelle? Yes. You've been here several times. What is this, like your fifth or sixth time? I think so. And you've always helped us with the Bridal Fitness Coach commercials. Yes. And it's been almost 50 commercials we've done over, pretty much the same thing. The same thing over and over again. And over and over, right. We're trying to change it up. Amazing. Yes, exactly. I'm so glad. You don't need to memorize that little, you know, fabulous thing, any of that. We're just going to talk about what's important. Did Bridal Fitness Coach finally, like, go on strike and say, I'm not I'm not going to sponsor you anymore if you keep using that same thing? Not exactly, but I was talking to her, and um, she's got, she fast-forwards through her own commercials. <laughs> so, <laughs> oops. <laughs> We've decided, yeah, maybe they're a little too long. Okay. We do these commercials. We have, If you notice on the thing, the, the first commercial is the longest. We have five minutes set aside to do a commercial. <laughs> 
Sometimes it can be fun. Sometimes it's a little laborious. So, okay. So what we're going to do is we're just going to get the important stuff out there. Okay. Let's see what we can do with this. Sounds good. Okay. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Bridal Fitness Coach. Um, I don't think she was around in the days of the, you know, the vandalism at Stern Grove. But... Here's what she does. In fact, why don't we just talk to Daniel? And you, feel free to jump on it in. We're going to explain it to him. By the way, we didn't vandalize anything. <laughs> <laughs> we left that place in pristine condition. I don't know what happened to those It was pews. all Joni Mitchell I don't know where, where all those splinters came from. You know, I don't know how that stage collapsed. I, I know nothing about that. <laughs> what happens with bridal fitness coaches, some brides, while lovely and wonderful, they're not comfortable with their looks. So they go to Bridal Fitness Coach. And Bridal Fitness Coach gets them really be, be, beyond, you know, getting them into shape and getting them to fit into their dress and everything. This is the whole point. And this is why I chose them as a sponsor. <laughs> 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 because they're really looking at beyond the wedding. The, everything down the road for their whole life. They, you know, picture. I should have kept the script because I... <laughs> It's not just for the wedding, it's for the rest of their life, right? Sounds good. Can you please save me with this here? <laughs> Tell me what you know about Bridal Fitness Coach. She works with both brides and grooms and wedding parties. Six times now she skipped right to the end of the commercial. <laughs> yes. It's already been like 10 minutes. That's true. Okay, yes. And so what she does is she has a she has a she has all sorts of packages where whatever the bride needs, she can get them to that goal whether the bride whether the wedding's just around the corner or it's next year, she works with them for the goal, she works with them with their nutrition and she has uh what is it like 99% success rate. And what now, happened to that one girl? She was a drinker. Oh, I see. Yeah. So, you know, you can't blame can't blame Bridal Fitness Coach for that. <laughs> how do we get in touch with her? This is how you get. Thank you very much. Thanks for wrapping this one up. Okay, you can either go to bridalfitnesscoach.com or you can call. This is without the paper in front of me. I got the number memorized now. Oh, good. 415-317-6827. That number again? You can say it again. 415-317-6827. You remember this part. Bridal Fitness Coach. Make a commitment. Very good. But incidentally, that had a lot more power to it than the introduction for the show. I, <laughs> I wasn't going to say anything, but that was kind of lame. I okay. told you I just woke up from a nap. All right. Okay, so now we're into the good stuff. Wake up, Daniel. Uh, <laughs> oh, who are the people in your neighborhood? In your neighborhood. In your neighborhood, say who are the people in your neighborhood? Okay. We built in applause. That works. We are here. We are talking with Daniel Bacon, the author of the new book. It's it's. I had to reserve the copy on the shelf. I called. I said, "Do you have a copy?" He says, "Yeah, but we're losing them. You know, they're going. Do you want us to hold it for you?" And so I had to go down and get it. Frisco. 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 Now you know what I'm going to ask first. Okay. And I know you addressed it in the begin, very beginning of the book, but how could you name it Frisco? Well, first of all, do you know how the word Frisco came about? Well, of course I do. I don't. I'm S.K. Morton, but for Michelle's benefit, <laughs> yes. The, I'm the you, fall guy. Why don't you let her, why don't you fill her in? I'm going to take a nap while you, while you tell the stuff that I know. Well, it actually originally came about from the Spanish because when they were writing all of their memoirs and dialogues, you know, they abbreviated things, right? And so San Francisco, you know, when you're just writing really quickly by hand, you know, you just eliminate some of the letters. Mm -hmm. So you just take out, 
you know, some of the letters and lo and behold, you get Frisco. So the Spanish were the first ones to start saying Frisco. And uh, You know what? I'm going to build a wall. <laughs> oh, wait, no. I'm sorry. That's a... <laughs> no, that was Mexico. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, but it's the one thing that I always try to remind people of is that the word Frisco, the name Frisco for San Francisco, has and has always been used affectionately. Mm-hmm. It's never been used in a derogatory way. It's never been a slur. You know, it's just a way that people referred to San Francisco. I mean, just think, you know, even even Otis Redding, you know, sitting on the dock on the Frisco Bay. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's love in those words, That's right? True. So, you know, it's funny. I, I was just at the Bay Area Book Festival this weekend, and, you know, I had Frisco out there in my Barbara Coast Trail books, and people were coming by, and, you know, most people, you know, they were okay with But there were a couple of people who came by, you know, well, I'm old San Francisco, and oh, it's like chalk on a, you know, fingernails on a chalkboard, you know, saying Frisco. They, they just, but they were mostly, I think, older people, you know, from that Herb Cain generation. Right. And Herb Cain, you know, wrote that book, you know, Don't Call It Frisco. Right. Um, but he actually recanted that right. years later when he said, it's always been used by the men on the waterfront and no effete journalist would, you know, should dare try to correct them. So um, even Herb Cain recanted this idea that somehow Frisco is a bad name. Joshua Norton didn't recant. <clears throat> oh, he okay. stuck by it. He did. Well, I'm well, just trying, there's I'm just still trying to time. impress him with <laughs> this one. Yeah. But he's not around. So. Well, then let me ask, because the fact of the matter is, you, everything you say is correct, as far as we know. I'll do some research later. I'll Google it. But for right now, we're just going to give you the benefit of the doubt. No, but uh, all the things you say are all true. And I also know it's completely emotional. But it does irritate me when I hear people say it. It's almost like being upset when your team loses. When you're a little kid, yeah, you can understand being emotional and crying. But when you become an adult, you get over those sorts of things. But it seems to be something that the adults in San Francisco don't get over. And it does not, for everybody, it doesn't ring well. I think... Uh, R.D., behind you, are you agreeing with me? She's Someone she's on the to. fence now. I see her. Yeah, see? So she's changing. Oh, You're the only one. Her We're going to bring it back, S.K., whether you like it or not. The real crime is San Fran. That's the thing. We were talking about this the other week. There's really only one way to say it, and that's San Francisco. You run it all into one word. And I believe Herb Cain actually wrote about that, too, about the words that we use in San Francisco. We say Vallejo and not Vallejo. You know, and there's all those kinds of words, and San Francisco is one of them. You know, a lot of people say San Francisco, like, they, they, they draw that A out in Fran just a little bit too oh, long. That's, yeah. But if you're, you know, if you're, if you're true San Francisco, it's San Francisco. San Francisco. Yeah, there's, there's, no, there's no A right. there. You basically chop that out yes. and feed it to the dogs. Exactly. So, so okay. But, but listen, so, um, you know, I almost, and sometimes I wish I had, but I almost named the novel... We called it Frisco instead Ooh. of just oh, Frisco. That's See, good. that would have uh, yeah. gotten me a lot less dirty looks when I was carrying it on the bus. There you go. <laughs> we called it Frisco. Because the reason I decided to title it Frisco was because it really was very, very common in the 1930s, especially along the waterfront. Right. But pretty much a lot of working people, mm-hmm. you know, whether it was, you know, policemen or firemen, or whoever, um, they, a lot of them, called it Frisco, and it was always, you know, this affectionate nickname for the city. Um, And, you know, I wrote, spent many, many years writing the book, and I had a number of different titles. 
uh, for it. And then I went to the opening of the visitor information or the visitor center uh, for the Maritime Museum, which they have an exhibit called Walk Along the Waterfront. And it was created in large part by a very good friend of mine, Richard Everett, who at the at sort of an opening party, and he had all these cups made up, you know, these handing out that said Frisco on the outside. And he just thinks that Frisco, especially because it was used in the waterfront and he's part of the Maritime Museum, you know, he likes yeah. it. So I was looking at that cup and I was thinking, gee, you know, that, that wouldn't be a bad title. And then I went back to my manuscript that I've been working on and I looked through it. And actually, it's in there throughout yeah. the book. And I thought, oh, this is this is really a no-brainer. I don't know why I even thought of any other title. So. Right. And people well, from out of town must have no problem with it at all. Yeah, they don't either. Which is, the, most of the, yeah, exactly. which is most of the reading community. Well, let's do this. We'll just refer to, like you do with Macbeth. Okay. We'll call it the, the book that shall not be named. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, we'll call it Frisco. No, but you mentioned, though, you, you, were, you were writing it over a long period of time. How long did it take you to write that book? Incidentally, if I can just throw out... Did you consider pictures and bigger font? <laughs> you could have got away with less words. <laughs> well, either that or, or more pages. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> it's probably got enough pages already. Um, 15 years. 15 wow. years. Right, right. I've worked wow. 15 years. So you were writing on it when, when we first met. Yeah, I think that just, yeah, I was still, it was very early on. But, you know, I started out, I did a year of research before I even tried to, to pen the novel. And, uh, That's so great. You know, uh, so listen, so, you know, the book takes place in 1930. One of the characters is a sailor who sails around the ocean and, and there's a waterfront. And, I mean, all these things that, you know, I've never been a longshoreman. I've never been a sailor. Uh, I didn't live in San Francisco in the 1930s. So to really try to make it real, I, you know, I really felt I needed mm. to know what I, the hell I was talking about, yeah. you mm-hmm. know, because otherwise it's just... You know, it becomes very shallow. I actually wrote a 51-page chronology, the whole era that led up to it, then the strike itself, and then the aftermath and so forth. So anyway, I did all this research. And the thing about research is, in the end, you only actually use about 10%. Mm -hmm. But you don't know which 10% you're going to need. And it's this really incredible, transformative era in San Francisco history. And I'm anticipating your question here okay, because, because I'm, a, a, I'm a mind reader. Yes. <laughs> um, what made me choose this era was that, you know, being a San Francisco historian, I thought, well, I want to pick, you know, a dramatic era. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to create, you know, drama mm-hmm. and interest if you pick dramatic era. And, of course, you know, the earthquake and the gold rush are the first two things that might come to mind. But I thought, well, you know, I just I don't want to write another earthquake book or another mm-hmm. gold rush. So I started reading and thinking and so forth. And then, you know, I started finding out about the, um, the uh, uh, maritime strike that happened uh, in 1934 and then the general strike that followed that. So there's only been four general strikes in American history. It's this event in which the working people of the city say, okay, who, we're going to show you who has the real power here, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, that's, that was one of the outcomes of, of the maritime strike was this general strike that happened where the city basically got shut down for four days. Very dramatic. And so I thought, this, I can do something with this. I can make a novel out of this that I think will really be interesting to people. And, um, and that's what I did. Oh, wait a minute. Hold that thought. Look who's here. Have you met Babette? Babette? Yeah, oh, this is, the, this, be- the beautiful Babette. The beautiful Babette. Oh. 
I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Babette's been reading your book. She's farther. I'm not done with it, by I the love, way. I would have been here sooner, but someone has to park the car. Uh, yes. yeah. She's I'm so excited. I'm so um, excited to meet you, Daniel Bacon. Well, <laughs> gosh, and golly. I love your book, Frisco. Thank you. Yes, Thank you. it's awesome. Music I, I'm, to my ears. I'm, I'm upset because I was trying to finish it, but it is so stinking long. I just couldn't get through it. I don't think you it. tell the author stinking long. <laughs> it's long. You can say it's so full. <laughs> it is, but it's long. It's so Juicy. robust. There you go. Yeah. yeah. I'm right. You, I'm right at like chapter eighty-two or okay. eighty. You heard that right. Yeah. Chapter eighty-two. You're not. You're almost there. I'm almost there. You're, you're almost there. It'll I be know. So satisfying. And this finish. is. It's really compelling. It is, and the end is really, really, really good. Did you finish? No, I'm I'm right I'm right near the end though, right? So oh, you like mean yeah, yeah. you mean in general you're in the ending point and you you're satisfied with how it's wrapping? Yeah, I think this might be my favorite part of the book. Wow, wow, yeah. nice to know. Nice yeah. to know. Yeah. yeah, and you don't have a problem with being called Frisco? I don't. I know. I just. But I'm not from here. I'm from Texas. I know it bothers you, but. You know. Well, no. Mm-hmm. Let me make this because I don't want Daniel Bacon to not like me. I don't want Big Papa to never want to talk to me again here. So <laughs> let me clarify something. It's not that I don't like the book being called Frisco. Let, let's face it. That was just so we could talk about it. I was just saying that it, the word Frisco has always it bothered me for, and it's completely emotional, but it's just bothered me a little bit. But I'm perfectly willing to carry the book, and when people give me a dirty look that it says Frisco on there, I'll say, hey, this is Daniel Bacon's. <laughs> So don't give me a dirty or give me a dirty. So I I have a suggestion for you. Yes. So the next time you're alone, maybe like just by yourself taking a dump or something. Whatever. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Daniel, you so you're well. too good to work with. <laughs> and and you you, you know. Knows <laughs> me so what? Okay. And you don't know and you don't know what to do and you're just sort of sitting there and you know the magazine that's by the by the toilet there you've read it ten times already and you're thinking what can I do? Or your phone has died and you or your can't phone play has died poker. And you can't, yeah, you can't play. Just go, Frisco, 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 Frisco. Say that about, you know, 500 times. And Joshua Norton appears in the mirror. And, <laughs> and, and boom, it, it, it will le- lose any negative feelings. It will just become does, wor- a word. It just becomes sound. a sound. It just does, becomes a sound. Does that work with any word? <laughs> Maybe. Okay. <laughs> I knew he had a foul mouth. Anyway. So I, just before you came in, sweetie, I had asked him about the, the amount. He had just did a, a year of just researching. Oh, okay. And, and he's been writing it for, he wrote it for 15 years. Wow. So I was, we were trying to get an idea of how much information he had before he sat down to do the research, just how much he had. Because as a historian, he's, he's our premier historian here in the city. I was curious as to how much he had to catch up. Well, I, I found a book called The Big Strike by Mike Quinn. And I read it and I was absolutely captivated by it and he was a journalist of that era and he was there right so he wrote it you know years later but he lays out a lot of the politics that was going on uh, the corruption that was in the police department the corruption that was in the, on the waterfront I mean he really lays it all out and then details the strike from start to finish and I just I loved it and you know there have been actually other books since then I don't think they're nearly as good as his you know so that that really served as as really big inspiration for me to to learn about it. Now, <clears throat> the thing that really fascinated me about this era and writing this book, and why I think, for me, it's actually a more interesting era than even the gold rush and the fire and earthquake, is the fact that when the strike happened, 
The strike actually became a proxy war between all the various different forces that there were out there at the time who were trying to sort of, you know, capture the hearts and minds of the general public, were trying to influence society in that day. So on the one hand, you had the American Legion, which at that time was this really, really, you know, hardcore right-wing super patriot organization. You know, then you had the Communist Party, which was... Um, pretty strong in those days. They actually had an office across from City Hall. Mm. They staged a march up Market Street. Uh, you know, then you had unions, some of which were pretty corrupt and were run Wait by these... Okay, okay. I'll, I'll follow you for now. A corrupt union. <laughs> no, anyway, I'm sorry, go ahead. That's all right. Uh, and, and then, you know, uh, you had the Catholic Church, which... Another corrupt union. Oh, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> That was that yeah. was really no. That's communion. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was an interesting part of the book. I didn't realize how much the Catholic Church had so much influence in San Francisco. Absolutely. Yeah. So in the 1930s, probably pets. 60% of the electorate was Catholic because there were so many Italian, French, mm-hmm. Irish immigrants here in San Francisco, and so. You know, the Catholic Church had so much power, and all of the politicians who ran for mayor, for instance, would do a pilgrimage to the Archbishop's mansion to talk to him. And, you know, he couldn't officially uh, endorse anybody, but if he didn't like you, you know, word would get out, and you would not get the the Catholic vote, which, you know, in those days you absolutely have to have. So anyway, so there were all these different groups vying, you know, for power and control and for the public opinion during this strike. And so it becomes this, you know, wider thing. It wasn't just about these few longshoremen. It was really more bigger and then it became nationally known and during the strike they actually got donations from all over the country internationally they got donations because people saw this as a uh, place where you know working people were going to stand their ground and demand rights uh, to you know uh, fair wages and and safe working conditions wow now were any of the like the characters you have in there were any of them as sur- acted as surrogates for any of these groups or anything like you know when you the characters what were the their was their role supposed to have a greater meaning to it or was it them? difficult mixing the fictional story with actual history those are two different questions it's the same thing it's, phrased, it's, it's sort of a, it's, more a, it's a follow up question it's a good follow up question uh, whose is a good follow up and whose is a good good one <laughs> i'm not saying okay uh well so the part of the story, the fictional story, is a love triangle. One of the young men is working for the Longshoremen's Union, and then another is working for the employers on the opposite side. And then the woman, Clarissa, uh, is a secretary to the guy who works for the Employers Association. And um, I, I really, when I was writing it, I began to think that Nick, who works for the union, he sort of represents the working people, of San Francisco. Roger sort of represents more the employers. And Clarissa really represents the people of the city, sort of the, you know, the, the general body politic. And so these two men are vying for her affection oh, um, as part of the plot. Wow, so, now I look at the book in a totally different light. Yeah, I'm, I'm, maybe I made it too subtle, but I didn't want it to be out front. I didn't want, yeah. you know, you, you don't it gives want it more not meaning. an allegory, yeah, not too allegorical. Yeah, no, yeah, I didn't want to make it too allegorical, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, but I, 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 I thought that that, uh, 
you know, when you add those kind of layers on where one layer um, supports an, the next layer, it, I think, can kind of make a book richer mm -hmm. and, and sort of stronger. So and it's almost like how history or how the events created these people. I mean, because they're products. Right, right, exactly. That's, that's beautifully said. And Too bad we don't have a microphone. Yeah, right. <laughs> if, well, yeah, she was saying that the... That the, the characters are, are both their own people, but they're also molded by the events around them. Right. And, uh, and that's, that's, you know, that's right. one of the, the, the challenges of a writer, especially in historical writing, is, is how are you going to integrate your fictional characters into history, especially if you want to make the history be as accurate and, and as complete as you can, right? right? I mean, if I didn't really care about the history that much... It would have might have been easier, but I did. So I wanted the characters to actually have roles in events that, that in fact happened. So you didn't do that thing that they will sometimes do is tweak a couple things, amalgamate some people, do just so you can you can push your story along. Or should I not ask that question? No, 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 no. I yeah, yeah the characters are all accurate. Yeah. Um, of course, I put them into some fictional situations in which I have to put words in their mouth and thoughts in their head. Right. There's right. no way of getting around that. But, but the I, events. But I really, the events are all events that happened. And in fact, I was very fortunate. I went to the ILW library on Franklin Street, which is the Longshoremen's Union. And I actually got to read the original copies of the original meeting notes. And that was just, I mean, you know, I, 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 I felt like I was touching history. Yeah, well, you were. And, you absolutely uh, were. Yeah, so that was, that was really a thrill for me. And then, so yes, I took great pains in making things accurate. And, and when I had historical characters doing something, I always had them doing something that they would have and could have done. So, for instance, there's a, a large party scene at the Falkirk Mansion owned oh, by yeah. Robert Dollar. Yeah. You know, with all these characters. Was he a real person, Dollar? Yes. Yeah. I was going to look him up, but I wasn't sure. You know yep. what? He's on my tour. I talk about the Dollar, his, the father and the son and the whole shipping company. I got, she doesn't pay attention to anything I tell her at home. Uh, <laughs> all right, you can go put ahead. It in a novel. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're she had right. to wait until, until she read my Exactly. Yeah, she right. doesn't listen anyway. Okay. Well, your husband, so... That's true. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I wanted to get a little credit for knowing something, but uh, she didn't. I didn't get any impressed. of that. Yeah. Okay. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So, so this party, you know, in which I have, you know, the governor and the mayor of San Francisco, and that party is completely made up. But absolutely, they could have been at a party like that mm -hmm. in that place at that time. So I, you know, I wouldn't have put them someplace where which would have been totally mm -hmm. incongruent. Right. Well, and, and speaking of locations. Uh, you have a lot of locations in the city. How did you choose which ones to include, and and any are there any that are special to you or favorites that you really worked into the story? Oh well, thank you for asking that because that was something I really paid attention to, especially as a tour guide of San Francisco. I chose as many locations as I could that were there in 1934, mm -hmm. but are also there today. Mm -hmm. And in the back of the book, there is a list of those locations and their address so that if somebody reads the book and then w somehow gets inspired to want to see the place where some of these scenes were set, they can use that list in the back of the book to go through that. So some of my favorites, one is the Archbishop's Mansion mm -hmm. uh, on Steiner and Fulton right across from Alamo Square. And it's a 35-room mansion with a French mansard roof, mm. uh, very elegant, stately I pulled up pictures. Building. 
Did you? I did. It's okay. really That's the beautiful. really dark one, right? Like a like a dark purpley or dark gray. It's a yeah, it's a gray yeah. building. And the inside you go in has a large foyer with a circular staircase mm. that goes up um, to the floors above and then there's an oval skylight over that that shines light down on this beautiful circular staircase. Now today um, it's a a B&B, bread and yes. breakfast, that is still called the Archbishop's Mansion. So mm-hmm. you can go in there and oh, just and, and wander around. And they're, I'm sure they're happy to have you come in. So that was one. Um, Julius's Castle, which yeah. unfortunately... Yeah. Is, is that going to ever open again? It's such a great it's location. It's got to. It's got to. I mean, it's such a phenomenal location. Yeah. And it's it's such a you know interesting building. I've eaten at Julius's Castle, and you know it's, it's a really, really cool place. And... You know, it's been around, I don't actually know when it was built, but it was certainly there in the 30s. And back then, uh, they used to have a turntable in the front of it, in the st- embedded in the street, because it's such a narrow street going up there, and people would go up there with their super long cars. Mm-hmm. So you, what you do is you drive up there onto the turntable, the passengers would get out, and then they'd turn around so they could face the car going back down Montgomery Street. Are there any remnants of that left? I don't think so unfortunately but uh you you might yeah, double check, check on yeah that. Double we go check up there quite a bit where did people park because there's no parking up yeah, there but there were only four cars in the 1930s <laughs> so um i think when at last it was open they had a parking um lot down below with a shuttle so oh, they, they okay. would shuttle people up and back okay, yeah okay. um because yeah there's not a ton of parking up there i mean there is a little bit but yeah not too much and then the other thing is it's right next to the filbert steps right mm-hmm. so you can you can, if you have dinner there, you know, you then can can walk up the steps to the top and Coit Tower and mm. all that. So it's a, it's a cool location, very San Francisco. No. Oh, that's so, very cool. Yeah. So, no, you, no, Coit Tower. Yeah, we, yeah. Talk to us about the Coit Tower and and how you had that incorporated with the, with okay. the story. So during the course of the novel, both the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge were under construction. But also Coit Tower was under construction and, in fact, was completed during the course of the novel, about the middle of 1934, while the maritime strike was going on and while these riots were going on. And in the lobby of Coit Tower are these fantastic murals that are still there, and they've kept them in absolutely pristine condition. I mean, the colors are still just so vibrant, you'd think it was painted, you know, yesterday. Mm. But also, you know, there's some left-wing um, themes in there. So, for instance, there's a library scene where people are reading all these very left-wing, mm. you know, uh, publications and books. You know, Karl Marx is on the shelf there, his book, and that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. the other thing is nobody is smiling, mm. not one face. And there's probably, I don't know, more than 100 different faces in the various different murals. None of them were smiling because, again, this is in the depths of the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. The country was in bad shape. So they finish building it. The strike is going on. There's riots going on nearly every day, tear gas all across the waterfront, people getting injured and so forth. And the park commissioners say, you know, with all these you know, left-wing, you know, radical elements in these um, murals, uh, you know, we shouldn't open this up because, you know, it might incite people to become even more revolutionary. And that was, you know, the big fear of the establishment. So what they did is they basically did not allow Coit Tower to open up 
and it didn't open up until months after the strike was over. Do you think that had it opened, do you think it would have caused some sort of upheaval or would that have been a spark or would that have just been just another thing? It would not have been a spark. Yeah. It would not have been enough. No. Ironically, though, this whole idea that somehow San Francisco was perhaps on this verge of communist revolution was, in fact, whipped up by the establishment. Mm. That's so true. So one yeah. of the things that the establishment wanted to do is, in order to try to discredit the longshoremen, Mm-hmm. was to, to claim, oh, these are just a bunch of communists and they're just, this is part of a communist revolution. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, they're getting paid from Moscow when really what they really want to do is just keep them down. But it was like they ended up sort of drinking their own Kool-Aid. So they started mm-hmm. to believe their they created own... created the rumor. <laughs> they, yeah. yeah, they created the rumor and then they started to believe it, right? right. And so they yeah. got themselves all, you know, f- afraid that this was going to happen. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but no, to answer your question, no. It, 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 opening Coit Tower, you know, is... And, and I sort of make... I don't know. I make, I make light of it. It's and everything. Can I, can I, can I, um, <laughs> can I give my opinion on that? Yes. Wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> Woman, you may give your pre- well, your just comment. Based yes. on what I read in the book, it seemed to me that everybody was so busy doing other things. I don't think they would have been making a big trek to Coit Tower personally. They were all down at the waterfront, rioting and fighting, and they were had so many other hold it, guys. Things to do. <laughs> hey, let's go look at some art. It's gonna feel yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Take yeah. that nail out of that board. We gotta go look at some girls. <laughs> right, right. Right. Put down that picket sign. Yeah. <laughs> let's go look at those people picking oranges you know, on the walls. Yeah, right. Hey, did, was it Stackpole? Did he do any of those murals? I believe so, Ralph. Yes, yeah. yes, he did. Okay. Yes, yeah. yeah. There were like seventeen, I believe, artists. Okay, there was a bunch of them okay. that worked on, the, and they were they were all pretty well influenced by Diego Rivera. Mm-hmm. Right. So he yeah. didn't do so, any of them. No, he didn't. Oh, uh, I but thought he were inspired by. No, they but they were inspired by him. Yeah. But he was okay. buddies with a lot of those guys, right? Yeah, and I he what? I think he visited while they were doing it. He came and yeah. visited because he was in San Francisco around that period and. But he did he did several other murals. There's yeah. one at City College, the one at the Women's City Club. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the art more. the Art, art Institute. Institute has Art one. Institute has one. Really yeah, nice so he's, one. I guess he did three of them in the city. He, didn't he keep a studio at the at the Monkey Block at the Montgomery Block? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, yeah. So many other famous. people. Yeah, they were all yeah. buddies down there. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Great location. Yeah. Um, so now, did you? And if you don't, that's okay. Did you have any section of the book you? Uh, would like to read? Sure. Okay, you have something uh, prepared? I have a, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm not asking you to do it. I was just curious. It was just a question. No. Uh, why don't we do this? Why don't okay. we do a quick commercial for Mike Surf School, and um, then we'll come back and we'll have we'll have you read, and then we'll talk about some other stuff in sounds, your life. Sounds perfect. All right. All right. All right. You want to try Mike Surf School too? Let's do it. Okay. What do you want to know about Mike's Surf School? I want to know about Mike's Surf School. Okay. Well, do you know how to surf? No. You know what would happen if you went to Mike's Surf School? Would I learn? You'd learn how to surf. Oh. You would learn to stand up. Okay. You would learn to get in the water. Okay. And I mean, and then you'd stand up on the board. Oh, that's I don't know. Great. Maybe you drink heavily and you need help learning to stand up. But standing up on the board is the key. It's a big I deal. I would think. At Mike's Surf School, you can learn that. I would love to learn that. Wouldn't how do I get in touch with Mike? Shoot. I should have written that down. <laughs> and where's Mike's Surf School Mike's based? Surf School is based in Pacifica, California. Okay. Just down the coast from Ocean Beach. In fact, I was talking with Mike about it. I asked him why he wasn't doing Ocean Beach. He says it's a little too advanced. Mm. So he goes to the spot where everyone learns. It's Lindemar Beach in Pacifica. It's right, milder. Milder yes, waves there. And very close to the beach Taco Bell. <laughs> 
the most important. Yeah. And so he's got several years of experience um, uh, with instruction as well as he's a fantastic surfer himself. So anyway, you going to learn? I want to learn. You going to go to Mike's surf school? I want to learn. Do you want to pay full price? I do. Really? He deserves. I want to get the best instruction. I don't want him to feel well, like that's yeah, the you thing with Mike surf school. <laughs> I don't want to feel like he's... <laughs> Giving me anything less than 100%. Well, fortunately, he doesn't give discounts. So you'll always get 100% from Mike at Mike Surf School. How's that for a commercial? No, here's what you want to do. If you want to learn to surf, you give him a call at 650-898-5522. What's that number? <laughs> 650-898-5522. Mike Surf School. What's the tagline? <laughs> I'm just trying to get it out. Mike Surf School. Go to Mike's Surf School and learn to surf. <laughs> Go Sharks. Uh, tell me the end. Yeah. I haven't gotten there yet. No, I don't know the end. Well, now, you can't put this... No, it, no, no, yeah, yeah, you can't. it turns out Harry Bridges is Luke Skywalker's father. Right. <laughs> so I actually have a question for you. Yes. What did you think about the scene with the Amos and Andy show? On account of your being black. I thought. <laughs> Fair question. What did I, I? I don't really. I felt that that was your way of of saying that that wasn't okay. Right. That's how I, I felt that that's what you were. That was the point you were getting across. Right. Was that, am I right? Yeah. Yeah, yes. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 So, okay. I'm yeah. Good, because I, I, you know, um, I did do it at a reading. Um, mm. You actually read it out? Yeah, I read it out, and I did the accent and everything. Oh. And Ooh, do that one tonight. No. <laughs> and so brave. My wife said she felt a little uncomfortable while I was doing it, mm -hmm. because you know, you kind of don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. until then afterwards when, you know, I talk about mm -hmm. Harry Bridges saying, hey, that's not okay, mm -hmm. it's not good. But but mm -hmm. when I was actually doing it, you know, my wife was like... How did you, you know. feel when you were doing it? Oh, that's the real key here. I, I loved doing it. I loved it. I mean, I, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a ham. Mm -hmm. And anytime I can do, you know, singing or do accents of any kind, because I have other types of accents. I've got, you know, Italian accents. I've got, you know. Well, let's Irish hear it, accent. Mr. Benny. Plus, <laughs> plus, I grew up in Oakland. Oh. Okay. In all, so you in, can do it. So I can do all my, yeah. all, you know, I went to all integrated schools. So, you know, I'd be hip. You'd be hip. <laughs> that, should be your closing line. Yeah, right. that should be your closing line. I'd be hip. Yeah, that'll go in there. All you know, right, I, you screaming racist. What are you going to read for us? <laughs> I, he's going to read one of my favorite scenes, I think. So do you want to give a setup for this, or you just want to get right in, or how do you want to? Yeah, I, I, it'd be good to do, to do a little setup. Okay, why don't okay. you set us up for this? Okay, so this is a scene during the riots on the waterfront during the 1934 maritime strike. And it was on a day in which the riots had been particularly violent and a lot of people had gotten hurt and a couple of people had even gotten killed. But then what happened was um, at noon, it was almost as if, you know, there was a, a, an agreed upon truce because suddenly at noon, the, the strikers sort of group back at the strike kitchen to get lunch and the cops just pulled out their thermoses and their lunch pails and started eating so suddenly there was this truce in the middle of this you know violent riot where everybody sort of you know just sat around and so this scene starts when a 
Clarissa is in search of Nick, and she is she hasn't been able to go into the strike or to the riot zone before that because it was too violent. But now that it's kind of quieted down, she's gone in there searching for for Nick and see if she can find him. So right. that's what the scene is. <clears throat> When Clarissa discovered that Nick had left the hospital, she instinctively knew where he'd gone. For the rest of the morning, she skirted the riot zone, searching for him, traipsing mile after mile in pumps ill-suited for the quest. Though she was tempted to move closer to the waterfront, she decided against it when she spied men running wildly along the Embarcadero amid clouds of swirling tear gas and smoke. And ever-present was the discordant sound of sirens wailing, guns blasting, voices hollering, engines revving, gears grinding, hoofs pounding. Even blocks from the riot zone, she encountered disturbing scenes. Two businessmen limped on, by on Harrison Street, complaining that policemen had chased them from the waterfront with billy clubs as if they were common laborers. On another occasion, a dazed striker, the back of his head bleeding, face ashen, mumbled crazily to himself as he stumbled along the sidewalk. The sight was so shocking she didn't know what to do and was relieved when a car, driven by a striker, stopped and picked him up. And several times she saw ambulances race toward the conflict in pristine condition, only to emerge later, pitted and scarred, driven by medics with pale, frightened faces. As the noon hour approached, the last of the morning fog evaporated to reveal a clear blue sky. Noontime also signaled a temporary truce, and as if by mutual consent, the combatants withdrew from the battlefield to nurse their wounds and fill their bellies. When the din of conflict subsided, Clarissa cautiously made her way to the Embarcadero, now eerily calm and quiet. Policemen, who minutes before had been firing pistols and clubbing heads, were lounging in groups, eating sandwiches and soaking up sun rays as if they'd just finished a regular morning shift. The roadway was devoid of traffic, save for ambulances picking up the injured, and strikers were also absent, having gone to the strike kitchen to, or to the waterfront cafes. Though Clarissa was tired and hungry and her feet ached, she still had one more place to check before abandoning her quest. Ooh, my ear, moaned a young man sitting on the sidewalk in front of the Hills Brothers coffee plant. He clutched a large camera with one hand while the other covered the side of his head. Clarissa went over to him and bent down. Do you need help? He looked up. One of his eyelids was bruised and descended, burying the eye. I think my ear's been shot. Clarissa stepped back, startled by the swollen face and the sight of blood trickling down his neck. For a fleeting moment, she wanted to leave, wanted to run away from this field of bloody regression. Why do men have to be so angry at each other, she thought, so hurtful? It made no sense. Sense or no, she couldn't abandon the injured photographer. Let's take a look, she said, bending down again and gently removing his hand from his ear. Blood dripped from a half-moon-shaped wound, as if a cookie cutter had neatly snipped off a piece of his earlobe. She took a clean handkerchief from her purse and pressed it against the wound. Here, hold this while I help you up. Harbor Emergency Hospital is just a few blocks away. My camera, he said, clutching it tighter. I gotta hang on to my camera. Okay, just take it easy. She grasped an arm and helped him to his feet. Thankful he wasn't a large man. This has been the worst day of my life, he muttered as he hobbled on a sprained ankle. I've been beaten by strikers, clubbed by police, and shot in the ear. And you're the first person who's bothered to help. He paused and squeezed her hand. I'm feeling kind of woozy, so if I pass out, make sure this camera gets to the San Francisco News. I've given my blood for these photos, and I want them published. Tell the editor they're from Rosenthal, Joe Rosenthal's. Sure thing, Joe. And thanks for your help. Don't worry, I was on my way to the hospital to look for a friend. The photographer stepped off the curb onto Howard Street and winced as his feet hit the ground. 
Well, I sure hope he's in better shape than me. Now, there's a footnote here. It says, years later, Joe Rosenthal would take the most famous photograph of World War II during the Battle of Iwo Jima. Afterwards, he remarked to that the San Francisco riots of 1934 were, for him, a much scarier experience. Wow. Mm. I, know, wow. I, th- I thought that was, that was a fascinating footnote. Yeah. That and, the riot was scarier than World War II. Well. For him. There were, you know, the police went kind of crazy um, yeah, during this. Did. You know, they, they let their emotions get way out of control. <laughs> um, I, you know, I actually... I went back after I wrote the novel and, and kind of read up uh, parts of it again, and I thought, you know, I could have made this much more violent, much more scary than I did, because they just started firing wildly, mm-hmm. and they hit um, innocent bystanders. Mm-hmm. They shot windows out of office buildings and, 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 and factories. Um, you know, they, they just clubbed people indiscriminately. I mean, it was really, uh, you know, a pretty scary experience. And, uh, you know, and I, I suppose that, you know, Rosenthal was kind of in the thick of it, right? You know, trying to get photographs while this mm-hmm. is all swirling around him and, and people just are, are out of control, I think, really on both sides because they, they all just got so angry and so overcome with emotion that it was, it was kind of like a war between the police and the strikers. Yeah. So clearly the relevance for today was not lost on you as you were writing this. Uh, you know... Things change, but they don't change, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and you know, w- one of the things about a historical novel is that um, ideally it also gives you a, a window into the way things are today. So yeah, uh, a lot of the strike is about sort of the power struggle between the workers and the one percent, which is not over today. In fact. You know, more than ever, I think it's it's with us today. And, and, you know, we're almost back to the period around 1900, you know, during the period of the robber barons. So this was definitely part of that battle between, you know, capital and labor, which, as I say, you know, we're, we're, we're still dealing with today. Yeah. Well, we got to wrap this up because uh, O'Reilly's almost on. <laughs> well, thank you, Bad Bad. At least you came along with me on that one. Actually, uh, before, you got a couple more minutes? Yeah. Okay. Now... Can we talk a regress a little bit um, back to the Barbary Coast? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah. Because that is where I first came to know about you Mm -hmm. and then uh, became a disciple. Um, (laughs) Now, actually, we go even before that. You were born, you're a San Franciscan. You were born here in San Francisco? Nope. Oh, get out of my office. (laughs) (laughs) No. I'm a a transplant. Um, I, I hitchhiked out here when I was two. (laughs) (laughs) Got a ride from these two adults yeah. you know, who just I don't know for whatever reason they, they took pity on me and they, <laughs> they, the they, the whole way. they drove me and my brother out here when mm-hmm. I was two and and I grew up in, in Oakland and Berkeley and then moved to San Francisco lived here for 27 years uh, what, now uh, one neighborhood Petrero Hill or Petrero Hill that was it yeah alright so you enjoy the Goat Hill Pizza I do, I do, and I, I moved from one state to the other uh, over time. So I went from from Arkansas to Kansas uh-huh. to Rhode Island. So you know, going up the hill, <laughs> going up the hill. Yeah, so was that the neighborhood you stayed in when when you were living here the whole time? Yep. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Can I ask what those years were? It was from nineteen seventy eight through two thousand three. 
And so that wasn't you. You went to school over in East Bay, then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, we all growing up in San Francisco, in California. You learn about the gold rush. You learn, you know, you, you hear about all this stuff. Right. What drew you into the city, or, or was it just that you were a history buff, and then this is the thing that that you were closest to? My dad worked in San Francisco, uh-huh. and so we would come over all the time to visit him, and to and his company had Giants tickets, so we used to go to see Giants. I saw Willie Mays play Willie McCovey, um, Juan Marichal. I saw him pitch a no hitter. Um, wow. so yeah, so I had some, I had some good times out of the stick. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah. And then, and then we used to come just, you know, f- do family outings, Golden Gate Park, you know, the, uh, the tea garden. And yeah. I always loved San Francisco, always came here. You know, I remember when the Hills Brothers coffee plant was in operation on the Embarcadero and you could smell the coffee roasting. I could remember the Schilling spice plant where you could smell them grinding mm. cinnamon and nutmeg. And, you know, I remember when there were ships, you know, docked at the Embarcadero. I mean, it was sort of towards the end, you know, of those years. But, you know, I, I do remember that era yeah. when San Francisco was still had a real waterfront. Yeah. I, I mean, don't you ever like... Aren't you ever there are times when you're in San Francisco and you just go, God, this is magic. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're, you're just someplace, you know, yeah. it's just like, yeah. you know. The light is right. It can happen downtown. It can happen on Telegraph Hill. It mm-hmm. can happen out at Sutro Baths. I mean, you're just someplace and you're going, my God, this is like magic. Yeah. So, we always mm-hmm. say that we wish we could go back in time because there's so many cool things about San Francisco history that are gone. Right. That were when you look at the old photos, it, I wish we could just be in the photos. Right. Yeah, whenever I'm doing yeah. research, I'm always calling her over. Look at this. Did you know this? And yeah, the history, but also even even currently, San Francisco is a lot <clears throat> like an amusement park. We've got rides, we've got food, we've got smells. Some of them are even good. Um, <laughs> uh, we've got our, you know, the, we've got beauty. We've got the water. We've got the the trees. We've got the you know. The entertainment. We've Beaches. really got everything. And we've got yeah. people walking down the middle of the street, just like in an amusement park. <laughs> um, but no, it's very much like that. And so, and like all everything everyone was saying, it doesn't matter where you are in the city or at what time. Mm-hmm. There was a time I remember when, when Babette and I were dating, and I just walked her home, and I just decided to keep walking. And I used to walk like 2 in the morning down, uh, down by Maritime Museum and everything. And when the fog comes in and the lighting, there's this color green. That just blows you away. And it was like 2 in the morning, and I called her. And I, I was there was like a dragonfly. I'm like, you wouldn't believe how this green on this dragonfly is bouncing off the fog. And I was all, you know, and she still married me. <laughs> yeah, I was going to go, yeah. whoa, dude. <laughs> so, how yeah. was the LSD? <laughs> hey, do you know, you know about the uh, brothel on Telegraph Hill? The CIA-run brothel? Which one? There was more. <laughs> more I only know about one. <laughs> What was that guy's name? White. He was the CIA guy who was running a brothel on uh, uh, the, the north side of the hill. Have you heard that story? I have not. Oh, we'll talk later. Okay. So how did you get your, your major from the beginning? Was, was history or no? How, how did it become your vocation? Uh, from reading. Really? You know, I just started reading about San Francisco. I think the book that first sparked my interest was a book called Suddenly San Francisco. And it's, it, it was a marvelous book. 
And it was just, you know, started with the gold rush and then went through that whole period and then on and up into the earthquake and fire. And I just, it captured me and the stories were fantastic. And then I just started reading more and, you know, just, it, it, you know, you, you get, it's, you catch the bug. It's, yeah. it's like a disease, really, <laughs> you know, and you catch this bug and it just starts to take you over and you just want to read all about the city. And, 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 and it's because there's so many stories, right? Absolutely. The history of San Francisco is really the history of stories about the city. And that's one thing that I did uh, with my Barbary Coast Trail guidebook is filled it with stories of people who were remarkable and did amazing things and really helped create the city to be what it is today. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I still refer to your, um, I have it up there too. I, I refer to it from time to time when I can't remember names or something. I go, oh, I know it'll be in here. Right. You know, if there's a name escaping me, I just, oh, there it is. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah so, Okay, so now you're now you're hooked. Um, how did you go from just being in love with the city, hooked on it, to founding the Barbary Coast Trail? And tell us all, because I, I know that took a lot of energy, mm-hmm. or, or beyond mm-hmm. energy, it took money, mm-hmm. time, pain, sweat. You killed a couple guys, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but I mean, w- tell us about that. How you developed the Barbary Coast Trail? Actually, it turned out to be love, although it wasn't my love. What it was was a, a good friend of mine was getting married. In Boston, I had never been to Boston before, uh, and so I only had a, a couple of days there. And I had read an article about the Freedom Trail, yeah. which mm. connects all of these historic sites. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, let's do this. So I went mm-hmm. down to Boston Commons and I bought a guidebook to it, and I had the most wonderful day I've ever had. Because, first of all, it's really exciting being in a city you've never been in mm-hmm. before. I mean, just everything's new and different, yeah. and you, know, you're, you, every, you notice every little detail. But I didn't have to worry about where I was going or what I was doing, because I was just, I get to follow this trail. So I got the guidebook, mm-hmm. and I just started following along and going to, you know, the site of the Boston Massacre and Faneuil Hall and the USS Constitution and Bunker Hill. And I was just like, this is just so cool. This mm-hmm. is just the most amazing day. So then on the plane back, I just started thinking, and I thought, started thinking, gee, you know, why doesn't San Francisco have a trail like this, you know, to, to help people, you know, navigate around the city, but also to learn about its history, you know, while they're just enjoying what's there now. So I just started researching and reading, and I mean, I'd already been reading about San Francisco history, but this kind of, I redoubled all my efforts. And, and then one Sunday, late afternoon, if sometimes you can go down, like, especially on a summer afternoon, go down to downtown San Francisco around 5 o'clock. You know, the shoppers have all kind of gone home. The tourists have gone back to their hotels or to their restaurants. And the city just kind of quiets down, right? And so I drove down to Fifth and Mission. I parked. And then I just started roaming through the city, you know, downtown and Chinatown and and then through North Beach and Telegraph Hill, and I just kept going and going, and I went over Telegraph Hill, and then went along the waterfront out to Aquatic Park, and I just found myself there, you know, after, I don't know, about an hour and a half or so, and then I thought, geez, you know, instead of walking all the way back, why don't I just take the cable car, right? So I hopped on the cable car, and, you know, that's that Hyde Powell cable car line, which right. is so mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah. You know, the, you, you, you're going up Hyde Street there, and the view going back to mm-hmm. the bay behind you is just stunning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get up over, you know, you, then you're going across Russian Hill, Knob Hill, and you go back downtown. And I just said, 
that was a cool walk, just mm-hmm. the walk itself, you know. And mm-hmm. I, at the time, I wasn't even thinking about history, but then I went back to my history books and I started seeing, well, okay, let's see, I was right next to Portsmouth Square, and that's the first mm-hmm. public plaza in San Francisco. Oh, yeah, and I went near Waverly Place, where this is the, the, um, oldest Asian temple in North America. Oh, yeah, and there's the, the site of the Pony Express, um, you know, uh, headquarters when that was around. Oh, oh, and then I went along the original shoreline, and then, oh, there's Jackson Square, with has these gold rush buildings. So basically, you know, I just started revising that walk to connect all of these historic sites. Yeah. Kind yeah. Of the, so what it was, is after I basically conceived of the trail and designed it and got all the history written and everything. I took it to the San Francisco Museum and Historical Society. I said, I'd like to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, would you be the sponsor? And they'd say, we'd love to. You know, this is, this, is, this is perfect for us. And so, you know, I started getting all the permits. And then we needed to raise money to put the plaques in. So, um, you know, then, then the Historical Society uh, kind of hired me as a consultant and, you know, I worked on that project and, and then just kind of the rest is history. So literally, how, how many, yeah, exactly. <laughs> how many plaques are in right now and how many more do you have to go? There are 180 plaques wow. that mark the trail and we'd like to do uh, another 70 would they be adjacent to what you've got going right now, or would this be uh, another, like another leg? No, they would just fill in in between oh, the existing plaques. Okay. So right now you can you can follow the trail along the plaques, but if we'd like to infill them, so that you know kind of better marks the right. trail as you're walking mm-hmm. along, gotcha. um, you know more trail like, because mm-hmm. uh, there's some blocks we've already filled in and it's really nice. You see them about every fifty or sixty feet, yeah. and others where they're just on the corners. Yeah. So um, I mean, you, you know, you don't get lost, but still, it would just be nice to have it. Mm-hmm. And you've updated the guide over time, right? Yeah. So the guide came out twenty years ago this year in uh, wow. 1996, oh, wow. um, and the last update was in um, 2013. So about three years ago. Now, wait a minute. If it came out 20 years ago, mm-hmm. when did the Barbary Coast Trail come out? So the trail itself wasn't created until 1998. So I wrote the book before I knew if there ever was going to actually be a trail. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, if I'm not successful in creating the trail, then at least there's this book and people can mm-hmm. use the book and mm-hmm. the maps in the book. Create their own trail. Yeah, yeah, they create their own trail. So, or, or they can just follow along the trail just using the maps. Mm-hmm. So what is your future? Um, well, with the trail, you know, to fill in the trail and to want to also create a, a curriculum for fourth graders because mm-hmm. um, that's, you know, the year that uh, kids study California history. And when my son was in fourth grade, I took his class on a tour of the trail. And it was funny because they had already been studying the gold rush. So they already were pretty well diverse on the trail. And so when I gave them the tour, you know, I'd say, well, so then, you know, James Marshall discovered gold in 1848, you know, (laughs) and he discovered it. 130 miles east of here on the South Fork of the American River, you know, <laughs> you know. So they kind of knew a lot of it. And so then by giving the tour to them, by the end of that, I mean, they knew the gold rush. They had it down. So, yeah, you know, I want to create curriculum that we can give to teachers and then offer tours and so forth. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'll tell you, it's the time has flown. It feels like he's only been here for five minutes. 
And turns out he wouldn't shut up for the last two hours. So, <laughs> walking down the street, they're the people that you meet each day. No, um, now, here's, here's the thing. I know I go over the line sometimes a little bit. No. Um, Not you. But there's, and you know, I've been gushing quite a bit. Would that prevent you from ever coming back? <laughs> well, not unless you think I just dribbled on way no, too long. No, 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 no. Like, oh, yeah. So not at all. It's like when I walk out the door, it's like, oh, oof. No, 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 no. Did that guy ever shut up? No. I mean, really? That's what they all say about me every week. <laughs> no. No, no, no. We, we had a blast. We, it's so interesting. We had, I mean, in... If, if Tony Long is willing to put up with you, I mean. <laughs> uh, no, are you, you going to write another book? Really? I actually have a trilogy in mind that I've already done some work on. Oh, mm-hmm. this is fault. These no, no, this isn't. No, it's a trilogy that takes place before this oh. novel. So it's San Francisco, and it it's the first one starts 1890s. The second one is like 1910, and the third one is 19. 19- 20 and uh-huh. so it's got it's got each book has its own arc and then there's like an overriding arc mm. to the whole thing mm. and uh, I'm, I'm I'm you know I, I need to get to work on it so once I stop you know trying to pump this yeah. uh, you know I'll have more time to work on that I think it's getting this is the thing it is getting late but it's Daniel Bacon and so I didn't yeah, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. Yeah, but it is getting well. A I, I, okay. I do want to break in here and yes. say it's it's been a real pleasure and, and an honor for me really to be here and to have this show with you. And I I want to you know express my appreciation and gratitude for for being able to wow. come here and wow. and uh, talk it's to about you guys and time someone show me some pink. respect. Yeah. I know. <laughs> no, they, they, I, they, my only request is you know maybe the food could be a little better. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> talk to the lady in your six. Just kidding. Just kidding. Well, just kidding. Just well, kidding. No, the food I, was fantastic. I, I loved it all. One more thing to say. Sure. Maybe now you can like relax and actually sleep. Yeah. He's been so anxious. <laughs> so been. Ner- oh, he's been oh. so nervous yeah. and Yeah. You really have had a huge impact uh on my life because I was I was gone from San Francisco for 9 years and when I came back I encountered you for the first time and it sucked me right back into the city and I'd forgotten how much I loved the city and then so I think we're going to have to hug after this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but before we do that, why don't we say goodnight? I, don't I left my heart. <laughs> All right. San Francisco. So I've got to say goodnight to people. Thank you and everything. Okay, first let me say thank you to the throng because you're the, one, you're the ones who are listening. And I mean, you're not really paying up or anything, and Babette gets upset about that. But, you know, thanks anyway. Uh, be sure to uh, go to SK Morton Podcast at Gmail if you're going to write something. Go to skmorton.com to, to uh, listen and to also you know look at the blog look at all the stuff we're always updating the website so go to that like and follow on the things that you like and follow and remember to tell everyone about the show tell them about the website tell them about the wonderful guests we have tell them about the wonderful Michelle Thomas who brought us another gift tonight uh, and a, a black and white version I'm going to say that's me and Babette's going to say that that's Chris Hemsworth and um We've got June 9th. Daniel Bacon's going to be doing a reading at Books, Inc. in the Laurel Village Books, Inc. on California Street, 7 p.m. And on July 12th at the Green Arcade on Market. All right. Well, this was fun. Should we do it again? Let's do it again. All right. We'll do it one more time. You should all be ashamed of yourselves. 
When I come home to you San Francisco Your golden sun Will shine for me Thank you. If you don't mind, I'd like to do it again. What we have here is failure to communicate. Well, let's hear it, Mr. Benny. Okay, give me the sound. So the next time you're alone, maybe like just by yourself taking a dump or something, whatever. <laughs> Veggies and hummus. I love your book, Frisco. Frisco, 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 Frisco. I knew he had a foul mouth. He's turning pink. I'm surrounded by you people. <laughs> he, he just...